Caden Co PR would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that this podcast was recorded and produced on, the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the East Kulin Nations. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging and we extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Welcome to the Press Office with Caden Copiar, the podcast that gives you an exclusive and unfiltered look behind the scenes of the Australian media landscape and public relations industry. I'm your host, Marissa Jane, and if you are dreaming of a career in public relations, are an aspiring journalist, or simply just obsessed with all things digital and traditional media, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome back to the Press Office with Caden Co. PR, where today I have the privilege of welcoming Christy Cooper, a renowned reporter from Seven News and Sunrise. Christy shares her insights and advice for both aspiring journalists and publicists, offering a behind-the-scenes look at the world of news reporting. We chat all about balancing the positive and negative stories of the news and how important it is for reporters' opinions to be kept out of the story. Beyond the newsroom, Christy is also a devoted mother, navigating the challenges of balancing such a demanding profession with the responsibilities of raising a family, and I really, really loved her take on this topic. Anyway, enough from me. Let's get straight on to the interview. Hello, Christy, and firstly, welcome to the press office with Kate and Co. PR. I'm very excited to chat to you today. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be joining you. Now, I would love to know all about your career journey and how you got to where you are today, reporting both on Channel 7 News and Sunrise. Well, gosh, it's hard to know where to start, but I think my first first time I dipped my toe into the news world was actually when I was still at school. When I was in year 10, we had to do work experience and I was lucky enough, one of my mum's friends, you might be too young to remember, but Anne Forward was an absolute powerhouse at Seven News. She was a reader there and she was my mum's bridesmaid when they were younger. And so she kindly set me up with some work experience when I was in year 10 and that just kind of opened my eyes and blew my mind a little bit. It was this whole new world that I had never even really thought about before, but I, right from the get-go, it was just fast-paced. It was intense. It was fun. Everyone was just really passionate about what they were doing. One of my first jobs I went out with was actually Rebecca Madden, who at the time was a on-the-road reporter. And I still remember there was a person who'd been hit by a train and I still remember watching as the police officers were picking up fingers and parts, body parts, and putting them into clear plastic bags. There's some things you'd never forget, but that didn't turn me off. So I um, went on at uni to study professional communications at RMIT, which is a combined degree of media, journalism and PR. I loved the idea of journalism, but I probably didn't have the faith at that stage that I'd be able to make it because I knew the statistics were really, I think, one in 10 who completed a journalism degree went on to become a journalist. So I did that combined degree mostly to keep my options open. But then while I was studying, Steve Carey was our news director at the time. He came and gave a sort of a guest lecture in one of our classes. And he was the, so he was the seven news director who I had met 
through my year 10 work experience and I approached him afterwards and said, hey, do you remember me? And he was like, of course I don't. You know, I have so many people coming and going. I guess he he gave me a chance to come back in and do some more work experience. So I kept my foot in the door a little bit there by just any time they let me coming in on the weekends and doing what? we probably called work experience, but it was probably a bit of free work. I'd go out and I'd be able to do the occasional interview and just help around here and there and get to know people. That still, of course, wasn't enough to get me a job once I'd finished my degree because in metropolitan news, you don't get a job without experience regardless of your degree. So I started, I was lucky enough straight, well, probably before I finished my degree, I got a job working on Medical Emergency, which was a documentary program filmed at the Alfred Hospital. It was on uh, 7 at the time, Wednesday nights, I think. So it was a half-hour doco program following people through their hospital journey. Uh, And I was employed by the hospital as their liaison officer. So I was working really closely. Well, I was working with the film crew, basically helping them find the stories, manage consents, make sure the doctors and the patients were feeling comfortable with the process and follow them through. And I got to meet some amazing producers and journalists through that program. And they, at the time, I was, I'd just ended a quite a long-term relationship, a four-year relationship came to an end. I was feeling like there was nothing grounding me in Melbourne other than obviously I loved this job, but it was a series work. So at the end of the series, there was six months without anything. And these people I worked within that environment had gone and done some regional reporting and loved it and said, just do it, go and work in the country. That is somewhere where you can go and work as a journalist without experience, they will employ you. And it sounded easy. So I thought, let's just do it. Let's bite the bullet. And when I say it sounded easy, it sounded easy to get a job. But I remember a few weeks or months later, I had a a spreadsheet of 70 different jobs that I had applied for base entry level journalism reporting roles all around, I think, Australia. Uh, And I just kept getting knocked back, knocked back, knocked back. And eventually I got a call about a a journalism role working for Prime Trialgan. So this was going to be writing the local news updates, which would then get presented by someone else. And I thought, yep, let's do it. Went through the process, nearly got the job. And then right at the end, they said, thank you so much, but you haven't been successful. And I was nearly ready to give up at that stage. But then about a week later, the same lady called me back and said, we've actually had a position open up in our Bendigo job. You were the second, our second preference would you like it? It's yours. And I said, yep, let's do it. So I packed up my life, moved to Bendigo. The job was was $37,000 a year. So I was earning virtually nothing. I was renting, luckily moved in with some girls who I ended up absolutely loving and developed some really lovely friendships up there. So I was working in this little office by myself with some salespeople and some advertising people, but I was the only journalist for the whole of uh, central Victoria. And I was doing all my work on a, a phone. So every day I'd be calling all the local cops shops, police stations, all the local fire stations, all the local MPs just saying, hey, what's happening? Have you got a story for me? And I'd be writing up to 15 different stories a day that would be in update form that would get my boss, who I still haven't met, was was Natalie Forrest, who was also presenting in Canberra. And when I say I haven't met her, I spoke to her on the phone all the time. She was fantastic. She was this amazing mentor that I never, I've never met face to face. And I would still, if I met, if I saw her, I would run up to her from, you know, hundreds of metres away and give her a big hug because she was an amazing mentor. But it was this strange, isolated environment where I was working, but at the same time, getting great skills in terms of trying to get the right information out of people, learning how to write for TV. 
And then I met someone up there who had been working for Win Bendigo. So we had just an updates sort of system with Prime. Win was the Nine affiliate. They had an actual local on-air news where they would go out and film and present. And so my, yeah, the person who I know who was working uh, for Win said to me, oh, there's actually been a position that's opened up with Win Tassie. You should go for it. And because it had only been advertised internally, they obviously hadn't had a lot of interest yet. And I thought, yep, right, I'm going to send off my resume. I'll courier it to them. So the director had to receive it and had to sign for it. But this this journalist I knew said, actually, that's not enough. You need to you need to go there. You need to go to Tassie. And as you can imagine, I was earning very, very little. I had not a cent to my name. We were going out every Saturday night, having a ball, and the idea of just flying to Tassie to try to get a job where my experience was that, you know, not particularly successful when it came to trying to get jobs, it was very daunting. But I, I did it. I called once I could see that my resume had been received, I called the director and I said, if you'll meet with me, I can be there this weekend. And by the time I got there, he was awesome. And he said, look, the fact that you've taken the initiative to do this has told me that you're already the person that we want on the job. We need a chaser. We need a hard hitter. So, you know, I basically got the job before I arrived just because he was so impressed by the lengths I was willing to go to get it. <laughs> so then I packed my life up and moved to Launceston and it was my first uh, on-air reporting role for Win Launceston and one of my <laughs> one of my first jobs was covering a murder trial so I'm sitting in the Supreme Court hearing these gory details which I'm my mind is blown by but also you've got this enormous weight on your shoulder be- shoulders because if you report incorrectly within court all of a sudden you're up for defamation and there are huge consequences so I was very much thrown in the deep end but I loved that. We had a tiny little team who were fantastic. And over time, I stayed in touch with Steve Carey, who was the seven director at the time. And anytime I'd come home to visit my family, I'd say, hey, can I, can I pop in? Can I do half the day here or there? And I would keep sending him my stories for, for feedback to say, can you have a look at this? And at the time, I was sending discs in the mail. So <laughs> this is probably what years ago now and I'm only now looking back and going oh yeah that was a long time ago there was no online links we could send uh, I was sending discs in the mail and then a week or so later I'd call up and be like hey did you watch it what did you think and he'd give me some feedback and eventually he called me and said all right we've got some freelance work for you and I was back on a plane again back to Melbourne and I was employed as a freelancer but as the for the first two years I think I was working 15 days in a row with one day off every three weeks kind of thing. So that's how I got my first foot in the door, I guess, working for Seven Melbourne as a reporter. I love so many different things about what you just said then. And I can imagine a lot of people who are wanting to pursue a career in journalism would have a lot of questions from that. One thing that I wanted to ask you about is obviously for you, you had to go down this regional route to get into a metro market. Is that still how the game works now or is it a little bit different with social media? I think it is still very similar. It's very hard to get a job in the metro market without experience of some kind. We do have some people who come through, for example, they, they do come and start working for our social media team and grow from there. We have some who come and straight in from union workers, a chief of staff's assistant, for example, and we'll go from there. But more often than not, particularly, so all the different networks are quite different, but our boss at the moment is very keen on employing experienced reporters. So he isn't 
basically employing anyone who hasn't got experience under their belt. But that being said, the different networks do approach things differently. And I, I, my advice to a young reporter wanting or a young aspiring journalist wanting to be an on-camera reporter would still 100% be go regional because that it's just the best way to get experience. It's, and even if you do come through metropolitan, even if you do come straight into a metropolitan newsroom, it's probably likely to take you longer because you're not going to be getting that same experience straight away. You're having to spend longer doing jobs that aren't as connected to to what you ultimately want to be doing. It is trickier now because some of those regional offices have since closed down, which I think is really, really sad because it's such, particularly if you live in a regional area, you want to know what's happening in your town. You don't, you know, yes, you care about probably what's happening in Melbourne a bit, but more so you want to know what's happening in your neighbourhood. So I think that new service is really valuable. But I would still 100% advise any aspiring journalists who wanted to work in TV to go through that route because, yeah, I think it's probably a more effective way of getting the experience that you need. That's really important advice. So thank you for sharing that. Now back onto your current role. So your current role is a senior reporter and producer at Seven News Melbourne. What does that role actually entail and what does a day in your life look like? So that is a good question. And my role has changed quite a bit over the years too. And I have actually, I did leave Seven to go and work in PR for a few years. So for about six years, I was a full-time reporter and I was often the chase reporter. So what that involved at the time, I more often than not was starting at 6am or 6.30pm. So we have shift work, a different journalist starts at, I think now our earliest reporter doesn't start until seven, but at the time we had a six o'clock reporter, 6.30 reporter, seven, eight, nine, and 11, multiple nights. Anyway, so I would come into the office and with that early shift, you're almost always chasing the overnight news. So the big things that have happened overnight, they might be the big car accidents, they might be something breaking in the political sphere and you have to go and try and chase a person before they leave their house in the morning. That's a whole other story. Uh, So, yes, you would often come in and have a three-minute conversation with the chief of staff who says, this is what's happened overnight. We need you to head straight out to this location. I would then spend most of my day sort of chasing that story, trying to find out what the truth was with the story, trying to get interviews with the relevant people, trying to identify who the relevant people were. And then in the afternoon, if you weren't crossing from on site, you'd come back into the office, listen to all the interviews you'd gathered, script write, clip out the bits that you wanted, sit down with an editor, pull it together for a story. Since So I left because I wanted to have kids and I couldn't see how I could possibly be a decent mum and a journalist because I was gone for breakfast, I was gone for dinner. I, was, I wasn't I was a good friend at that time, so how could I possibly be a good mother? So I was really lucky. I left and spent a few fabulous years working at Bupa and then I came back uh, as a in a different role as chief of staff on weekends, which I'll tell you about later. But I came back under a new boss. So I don't know who I, how many names I should mention, but Sean Menegol is our current boss. And he's really, really supportive of working mums. And he, I came back and I said, this is what I can manage. Uh, These are the hours that I can do. I can't do the early starts anymore because it's just not realistic and it's not what the type of mum that I want to be. And he said, okay, so I now don't start before nine. So my days look quite different now because the 
the early chasing, the early chase journos have already gone out. Our story list goes out at 8.30. So our chief of staff is the earliest person in in the morning. He's usually in at around five, sometimes earlier. He's gone through everything that's happening for the day. He's read every paper. He knows everything that's happened overnight. He's read every press release. And so by 8.30, there's already a solid list for the, the news that's going to be our focus for the day. And more often than not, I've already got a story assigned to me for that day if I haven't lined something up previously. So now I come in at nine and I have often a a slower start to the day. It's not uncommon for me to still be there at 9.30 now, which is nice. I can have a cup of coffee and start reading up about what the story is. And depending on what it is, it might be something I have to chase from scratch or there might be a prearranged event lined up. I might know from the get-go that we have a press conference at 11 where the government's going to be announcing something new to do with the rail network or something like that. Uh, And it's similar from there and that we will spend the first half of the day usually trying to find out as much information as we can, trying to find out who we need to be interviewing, trying to convince them to give us an interview. And then the last few hours of the day, if we're lucky enough to not still be on site, is pulling it together, writing it, listening to interviews, trying to craft a little perfect visual package. So I feel like my days are far more relaxed now than they used to be because they don't start so early. Uh, And I'll still be doing live crosses every few shifts, but not every shift anymore. Whereas when I used to do the chase shift, I felt like I was almost always crossing from somewhere around the state. You have given such an amazing insight into your job. It's funny, I never knew how much like a reporter actually does. Your day seems hectic, even though you say that it's calmed down now. But one thing that I think I would really struggle with as a reporter would be remaining impartial on quite topical discussions and things that I might be passionate about. How do you keep your personal opinions out of your reporting? Yeah, that's a really good question and something that I feel very passionate about. Um, so there are obviously, there are lots of things that in my personal life that I do feel strongly about. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to tell you now, I feel very strongly about equality. I feel very strongly about the environment, protecting the environment. I've got two little kids at home. There are all these sorts of things which I worry about their future. And I think, you know, how can I how can I ensure a good future for my kids? But I also think as a journalist, it is really, really important never to let your opinion affect your reporting. And somewhere that the lines are often blurred at the moment is, you know, we have commentators, uh, people who write opinion pieces, and it is their job to have an opinion. And I think often members of the public and sometimes younger journos forget that these are two totally separate things. So it is my job to not have an opinion when I am working towards, when I'm reporting for for Seven News, it is my job to not have an opinion, but to gather all the facts. And I'm very, very conscious of that. And if it's a story that I do have an, an opinion on, I will very consciously approach it from the perspective of my goal at the end of the day is for someone to not know what my opinion is and to present the facts and to ask the same questions from both sides and to present them equally. And I think most, certainly within our newsroom, everyone's really good at that, but I I will flinch whenever I it becomes obvious to me what a journalist's opinion is on a topic because I don't think that's our job. And I don't think that's what people want. People want when they watch the news, they just want to know the facts. They want to know, they, they will make up their own opinion. Yeah, so I, I feel like if I've done my job well at the end of the day, people won't know what my thoughts are on 
on a topic. That being said, I will also sometimes use that, like I will often chase stories that are important to me. So for example, my my son has anaphylaxis, he's got a peanut allergy. And so I have a particular interest in this area now. So anytime I hear about peanut research and or peanut allergy research, things like that, I will be drawn towards those. But I also feel quite comfortable that that's okay because there's not a pro and a con here. It's just pros. There are people who, you know, allergies, food allergy is such a huge issue here in Melbourne. We're the allergy capital of the world and no one really knows why rates are so high here only that there is something environmental causing it. So that is a, a probably a space where my personal interests and passions do sometimes influence my work because if I hear something, I will chase it and go, can we turn this into a story? But I'm also thinking I care about this, but I also know lots of other people care about it as well. So you do have to keep thinking about the broader picture and why why does this matter to everyone else? And if I can tick both of those boxes, then I'm definitely inclined to yeah chase stories that that I'm passionate about. And with that in mind, how do you approach the task of finding and researching these new stories? Is it for you a lot about doing that base research first before you set out to write what the story looks like? Do you know what? There are so many different ways that we find stories and having worked as a chief of staff has given me a really good oversight because that is really the role of the chief of staff is to find all the stories in play for that day. Some of them will have already been reported in the paper. Some of them you'll hear a talkback radio caller calling in saying there's, um, you know, something's happening out here and you've got to find out whether or not it's true. More often than not, it starts with a snippet of information and you've got to go and try and find out if it is true. That's where people like, you know, PR professionals, we will always, if it's to do with an organisation, a company, we will always go to the PR team first and call them and say, hey, is this true? Uh, And often we won't hear back for some time because they may not know themselves and they'll have to get a formal response. And so you just keep putting your feelers out until you get a hit. And it is very common for us to start chasing a story at the beginning of the day that within a few hours turns out not to be right. So it's it's quite common for us to spend hours focusing on what we think is a story, only for us to work out that the information we got in the beginning is not legit and we will drop the whole thing. So, and that's, I think, a, a huge responsibility that we, so it, it's a part of the job that is required because that's one of the issues with social media these days is people will often publish things on social media without checking whether or not they're correct and they will blow up and then we'll look into it and it'll turn up out that they are not correct. So one of the one of the good things about having this 6pm deadline for us is that we do get at least a bit of time to verify facts. And it hasn't been, it's not uncommon for us to find out that entire newspaper stories aren't quite right either. The journalist usually has very good intentions, but maybe is forgotten a really important piece of the puzzle or has been receiving some biased information. So yeah, no, no two stories are approached exactly the same and no two stories uh, are, I guess, started with the same bit of information. It's this, there's no one recipe for news. You've just got to, you've just got to dig. <laughs> you've got to dig as, as deep as you can. I that is such great insight. And I love that you touched on your role previously as chief of staff at Channel 7, because I did want to ask you about that role. 
And especially this relationship, I guess, with reporters versus chief of staff with publicists, what is the best way for publicists to approach a newsroom? Is it going directly to the chief of staff or as a reporter, are you happy to have those comms come straight to you as well? I think it probably depends what your relationship is like with the journalist. I get lots of um, people reaching out directly to me, to my inbox. And if I'm being brutally honest, most of them probably think I'm really rude because they don't respond to most of them because I can't. Once I've started my day, once I'm chasing a story, I can't focus on anything else. So if someone I know personally reaches out to me, then I will always respond and say, hey, why don't you contact this person or I might forward it on or I might um, put it aside and look at it at the end of the day once I've finished my current story. But if you have got something that is to be covered that day, I would always go through the chief of staff because it is the chief of staff's job to be on top of every single email that comes through. And I'm talking hundreds an hour. Like it is crazy, that inbox. And I'm still attached to that inbox because I will still sometimes fill in as chief of staff. So let me take that back a few steps as to what the chief of staff actually is. So I, yeah, after working in PR for a few years, I came back and I thought, I still thought I didn't want to report again because I still didn't think it would work with a family. So I, they had the weekend chief of staff's position was open. So that is someone who comes in at 6am and finishes at 7pm uh, Saturday and Sunday. So it's effectively three days work over two. And that suited me at the time because it meant that I could have the kids Monday to Friday. My husband would have them Saturday, Sunday. Then I would have them again Monday to Friday. Of course, family time was non-existent, which is why I only did that for a couple of years because then we were like, actually, we need to be a family again. So you you come in in the morning, you've got hundreds of emails to get through, you read through all of them, most that come or many that come from PR professionals. You then read through all the papers. You we hmm, how much how much information do I give away? We have ways of knowing what is happening within the emergency scene and emergency space, so you need to check through Uh, all of those and try and work out if any of them sound big enough to send a crew out to or to warrant further inquiries. You can't inquire about all of them because you drive, you know, police, media and fireys media crazy. So by 7.30, I would, by 7.30am, I would then have what my story list. And so part of this is also prepared from the day before. So you know the day before, what what the biggest stories are you chasing, which of those are still going to be stories the next day. You'll have a look in the date file. Sometimes there'll be events happening. So you'll know, you'll have a bit of a bare bones idea of the next day's news the night before. So I will then build on that in the morning, go through everything that I've read, jot down the stories that I feel are big enough for the day. By 7.30, I'd send that off to our news director and our uh, most senior producers and they would then give me feedback over the next half hour as to what they agreed with. Sometimes it would be like, yep, excellent, lock it in. Other times they would have heard of something that they wanted to focus on or, you know, there'd be a lot of back and forth. So by the time, well, our first weekend reporter when I was doing it was 7am. So by the time they would come in, I would know what they had to go straight out to. And by the time the bulk of the reporters were in at nine, you had a really good idea of how the day was going to look. And of course, that's constantly changing. The hardest part of the chief of staff's job is that first few hours of the day, getting the day set up. Then once the day has started at nine, nine thirty, things settle right down. And then the job is to monitor everything that happens from then on. 
So I, I often talked about it as being a bit of a, a traffic controller, air traffic controller, because you need to know all the pieces coming in, who the journos are, who the camos are, what time everyone starts. You need to pair people up and make sure they're off at a job before the job starts. You need to make sure you know where in the state everyone is so that if big news breaks, you can work out who's closest and redirect them. Uh, you need to, yeah, be on top of when people knock off because a lot of camos will finish by 5.30 depending on where what time they start. Therefore, they're not the best person to put down for a live cross at six. And you're constantly juggling the pieces of the puzzle. But it is the, the chief of staff who has that really good overview of what's happening for the day. So if you are working in PR or you're trying to get coverage for an event, they are the safest point of contact to make sure you're on the radar. That being said, if you're wanting to drum up a story that is not for that day, you have a personal rapport with a news reporter, uh, I still do think, yeah, as I said, I often feel very rude because so many people will send me things and go, why didn't you respond? It's because I've just got a different focus at that point. But if I have a quiet day and I'm not yet assigned to a story, then I might read it and go, hey, I'd love to do this one but it's just not as much of a sure thing. And I would say if you're ever waiting for a response from a reporter, send them a text because if you send someone a text, they'll probably get back to you, even if it's just, sorry, can't today, or here's the chief of staff's number. Because if we're waiting for information or chasing a story and we see something unrelated, we probably won't pay any attention to it. I find that so interesting and I would love to know how many emails are in the chief of staff inbox because that makes, I just can only imagine from how many emails I would send to them on a weekly basis. A lot. I would say there would easily be 50 an hour that come through, sometimes more, sometimes less, fewer on the weekend. If you're trying to pitch something to a TV news station, go for a Sunday because there is way less news on the Sunday. You've got no courts, you've got no politics. Well, sometimes, but more often than not, a lot of those business related activities don't happen on a weekend. So you're, and yet we still have just as much of a bulletin to, to fill. So my suggestion would be pitch it for a Sunday. And if you don't think that your story is particularly appropriate for TV, don't send it at all. Because if I see names pop up that I see all the time, I assume it's not urgent. I assume it's I'm just on another long list. And any anything sort of generic that comes through to me, I won't even look at because I can tell from the first line in the title if something's urgent. And again, I'm approaching this now as a news reporter, not as a chief of staff. Chief of staff has to be on top of all these sorts of things and has to know roughly what's in the email. But as a reporter, I can tell if it's a name that I see coming through frequently who I don't personally know, then I will go, right, this is just another joint email that's gone out to everyone. Uh, And if (laughs) the title says, hi, Christy or hi, Seven News team, hope you're well, I will automatically go, it's not urgent. Because if it was urgent, you'd tell me straight away. You'd go, bang, could you have a look at this today? Or this is one I'm wanting to send out to everyone tomorrow unless you'd like it exclusively. Um, In which case I'll be like, oh, yeah, I'll have a read and I'll flick it through to, you know, someone who can focus on it. So it's a a tricky one. And I would be interested to hear from yourself and a lot of other people as to whether or not you find us really rude because so often we just 
don't respond to these things and it is not intentional but it's just the way you sort of have to survive I guess so that is a question to you Marissa yeah well (laughs) do you find us really rude and how do you find chiefs of staff to deal with do you know what I I don't I think when I was a junior starting out in PR I would not find it rude but be like okay, what's wrong with my pitch? What am I doing wrong that I'm not getting any responses? But now being a little bit further in my career, half the time I still don't get a response and I've sent footage and it's on the news. And I know that people are so time poor, so I don't take it personally anymore. But I think, yeah, starting out in your career, you do go, not it's rude, but what's wrong with me almost? Yeah. And it's hard not, and particularly when you put so much time and effort into something and having worked for a few hours sort of for the dark side, which ended up being the light side, I, I started working for Booper and I was like, wow, this is so much better for my health and well-being. But having done that, I now appreciate how much time does go into these things. But I guess most journalists who haven't worked in PR wouldn't cross their mind because they've never been involved in trying to drum up a, a, a media opportunity. But I'd still, if and, and also if we're sometimes we'll be heading out to a media opportunity and then we'll get a call saying, hey, there's been a bus crash, we need to redirect you. In the good old days, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have bothered me in the slightest, whereas now I'm like, oh, they must be so shattered by that because they were so keen to have us there. And I, I kind of, yeah, I understand how, how much work that that really does require. And I wish I could solve the problem by putting a one-size-fits-all, like get your story on the news solution, but it doesn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> Definitely. And in terms of this role as chief of staff and, you know, working at a news outlet, is it important to kind of balance on both the good and the bad of what is going on in Melbourne? Like I assume we can't just have an entire negative newscast unless there's something really big and important going on. That's a really good question. And it's actually changed quite a bit over the years that I've been there and it very much depends on the news director. So we used to have a focus where regardless of what was happening in the world, we would always have a cute animal story or a feel-good, you know, cute kids, babies, balloons kind of story to make people feel better at the end of the day. We would often have what we call colour stories where, you you know, you just you run them because the pictures are great and it's going to make people sort of stop and pay attention and, and smile towards the end of the bulletin or often peppered throughout the bulletin. We don't do that so much anymore. Other networks still will, but seven doesn't do that anymore and to begin with I found that quite jarring I was like but people need good news but I think the way people consume media is quite different now people have got Instagram they've got Snapchat they've got all these other media forms where they do get fed those feel-good funny bright moments if you're watching the news a lot of people don't sit down and turn the news on anymore but if they do it's because they want to find out what's happening so I think that the role of the the feel-good stories has probably shifted onto other platforms and now we will focus just on news because it's worth telling. So we don't have as much light and shade in our bulletin anymore and I know for some people, particularly those with little kids, they're probably less inclined to watch it because it can be depressing. But you also know that if you're tuning into the news, you'll find out everything that is important to Melbourne, everything that you, you actually need to know as a Victorian and without the fluff anymore and as a journo I there's I used to love covering some of those fluff stories like a day at the zoo with a baby animal was a great day and we don't get as many of those anymore. 
But at the same time, I do respect that decision and the why we've changed things. And it is because, yeah, we focus on the news that people can't get from other platforms anymore. That is so interesting to me. And, you know, I have a particular interest in social media and online news. Is there any other ways that that has really, you know, changed what news reporting looks like over the years? Yeah, definitely. Well, look, I, th- I think it's it's no surprise that people want news quicker now. They don't want to wait until the end of the day to find out what's happening. Uh, we have, so since I started, we've developed more and more news bulletins. So when I first started reporting, we just had the 6pm bulletin. Uh, and then occasionally we would feed into a national afternoon news. Within the first few years of me starting, we developed a 4pm local bulletin. So all of a sudden we went from producing one bulletin of local Melbourne Victorian news a day to two bulletins per day with the same amount of crew. Now increasingly we are feeding into the morning news bulletins as well. There's also the latest news is often changes what time but it's in the evening. And of course sunrise which is So sometimes I will work sunrise shifts specifically for them, but also if you're covering the early shift, they'll often call you and say, hey, can we get you to cross into the program? So there's extra news to sort of fill that requirement and that need from people to constantly know what's happening. All of those broadcasts then go online. So when a report of mine goes to air, more often than not, it'll then get shared almost immediately on Twitter and on YouTube. We've also got... There used to be more of a focus for us to be tweeting as we went along. I think people probably don't use Twitter as much anymore, so it's less of a focus now. But we will have extra members in our team who are there specifically to push things out on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube. And so it's trying to do everything that we used to do, but also ticking all the other boxes at the same time. So social media has not only changed the way we push out news, it's also largely changed the way we generate news. So often the stories we cover come from social media or if we, so the bushfires or the floods, for example, things start happening in places you can't be straight away. Sometimes it's not safe for you to be there at all. We will often get a lot of our footage from social media. So I'll go into community groups from that area and you'll see what people are posting. And if anyone's recently posted video from that event, I'll reach out to them and say, hey, this is who I am. This is what we're covering. Any chance you could actually be our eyes on the ground and go and shoot some more footage for us? Or, you know, could we use that? And could you tell me exactly where and when it was? Um, So social media, I think, has not only changed the speed of news, but it's also provided, it's enabled us to give a much clearer picture of what's happening during major emergencies when we can't always be there or when it takes us too much time to get there. So it's it's constantly evolving. Um, there's also, so I've heard, I've listened to some of your other podcasts, which are fantastic, by the way. I think you do a fantastic job. And I've heard a lot of talk about TikTok. Don't ask me much about TikTok because I don't use it. And I'm trying chase a story. So there's this awesome tool on TikTok, and I'm just trying to make sure it's the correct platform, where you can actually search a location. So there was a a car accident recently, and I was able to zoom in on TikTok to that specific location and see if anyone had posted anything from a specific time frame and could just click on random, random spots on a map. And all of a sudden, there were these videos of people having filmed this big car accident that were 
completely public. And that, as a journo, is an awesome tool to have because all of a sudden we had footage of something that we previously didn't have footage of. So it is constantly evolving. As someone who is now a little bit older and a mother, I find it stressful, the thought of keeping up with the new mediums. But you really do have to because they're an amazing source of generating news, particularly when we work for a visual medium, but also, of course, pushing news out. And I think there are always things that we could do better and I think we should move faster when it in terms of keeping up with the new media but that's a very hard thing to do when you're so focused on what's happening today and getting a bulletin together for tonight's news. It's so fascinating you know this rise of social media I'm sure when you were first starting like you wouldn't have even thought that it would be part of your role checking social media for stories and now a lot of breaking news actually breaks on socials it it's wild to me. Yeah, it is. And I actually, I, I really distinctly remember when that shifted because we have the, the Quill Awards every year. And there was one year when the they introduced a new category, which was social or digital media category. And I, I'm just going to toot my own horn here for a minute. I won that year because there was a story I was covering. We heard, so Sean Sowerby, who's now working in PR, but he was our sport reporter at the time. He came over and he said, oh, my uncle is on a cruise ship and they've just been redirected to go and rescue a French yachtsman whose yacht has sunk in the middle of the Southern Ocean, I think. And I, my ears pricked and I was like, that is so cool. And I said, Sean, can I have his details? Can you give me his details? So he was in the middle of the ocean, you know, with, they obviously had internet connection, but no phone connection. So I'm communicating with him via the internet. And I said, oh, and you know, this is who I am. This is really exciting. Can you shoot some footage for us? And he was amazing. He just kind of loved being involved. He was like this, um, I think he was retired. Ian was his name, is his name. He was just fantastic. So he, the, the cruise ship was redirected. It was this gigantic cruise liner and this tiny little, so he filmed the whole thing for me. It was overnight when the rescue happened. Well, it was overnight our time because he started, my phone started pinging and he's sending me these little clips. So I'm giving him directions. You know, I'm saying film it landscape because, you know, everyone films that way on their phones. But I said film it that way so it's the same, you know, size as our TV and just film it in 20-second clips because anything bigger, bigger than that was really hard to send and send it through to me. So in the middle of the night my phone starts pinging and I'm getting these clips of this incredible rescue happening in real time where, and this was before all this was really happening. So it was your early days of Facebook. It was before Twitter. Maybe it wasn't early days of Twitter. Anyway, it was mind blowing for me to be watching this happen in real time because they had to, you can imagine the logistics of trying to get a, in really rocky seas, trying to get a person floating on a lifeboat onto this huge cruise liner and they had to lift people down and they sent down divers and all sorts of, it was very cool. And they had the planes flying over the top trying to drop markers to make sure the cruise liner knew where it was. And so, yeah, I was watching this sort of happen almost in real time. And then the next day I was like, well, I want to try and get an interview. How do we do this? And it was, we just started being able to use FaceTime but we didn't have the systems at work to be able to record an interview straight off FaceTime, which feels like a no-brainer now. But at the time, it just wasn't done. So I had to, 
uh, I set him up on FaceTime with an iPad and we used a camera to film the iPad and a microphone near the speaker to record the audio. And he gave us this great interview about what he'd seen. And then I was like, so Ian, um, don't suppose you could find the captain, could you? <laughs> and he went around and he found me the captain. I interviewed the captain. He found the head of the rescue um, team. And I interviewed, you know, the team that had done the rescue. And this was all while this yacht was still in the middle of nowhere. And that night we had this amazing story go to air with all these incredible pictures of how the whole thing unfolded and interviews with everyone involved just from Melbourne. <laughs> and that blew my mind at the time because I thought, wow, if we can do this, we can we can cover anything without being there. And that was really, I think it was 20... I think it was 2014 it was my first big award that I'd won and I was so proud but it was yeah for me that was the real shift of when social media started and digital media started really being able to change the way that we we gathered news. That is such an incredible story and you seem like you were at the forefront of you know being able to record off social media. I love that you were recording an actual iPad with a microphone from FaceTime. No it's <laughs> It feels crazy and I haven't spoken about a lot of this for a while so it's just making me feel really old (laughs) thinking about these things that at the time felt very normal and now it's like, wow, we were really behind the times. (laughs) Well, we weren't but it it feels like it now. (laughs) You were definitely forward thinking at the time and one thing I quickly want to touch on, uh, earlier in the conversation you mentioned how your current role is really supportive of working mums, which we love here because I think so many women in media get, you know, a little bit concerned about how they're going to balance being a mum, working in the media. So h- how do you find that? And on top of this, I do need to mention you are an incredible photographer as well. Well, photography for me has become a passion. So I more do that now for me than for anything else. I've stopped sort of taking paid work there. I couldn't manage it all. The the idea of balance, I always say, I don't think that's real. I don't think it's real to talk about balance when it comes to working mums and parents. And something I've always been, as you can probably work out, I've always been very career focused and very driven, but I'm also very keen to be the best possible mum that I can be. And it's so hard to find middle ground there because I can't be a great mum when I'm working full-time. So I'm not, I'm working part-time. I it's, I'm find it really lucky that I'm in an industry where my story starts at the beginning of the day and it finishes at the end of the day. So I really can go in for that one day, give it 100% and the next day, if I'm not there, I'm not really missing anything because when I am next in, you're starting from scratch again. So I find that really lucky that in this industry I can do that. But at the same time, I don't feel like I'm giving it as much as as I was as a full-timer. I 100% give it 100, 100% of my attention while I'm in there. But when I'm not in there, my kids are my focus. And when I get home often at 7 p.m. at the end of the day, the kids are crying out for for me, for time with me and to catch up for that day of being away. I've got a a nearly three-year-old and a little boy who's just turned five, so they really need their mum. So the idea of balance I find really a tricky one and I I probably don't like the word because I don't think it's real. Um, I don't think you can give 100% to both, particularly when your kids are little and I find it really hard, but at the same time when I'm not working, I really 
miss that mental stimulation. So even when I was uh, on maternity leave, I craved going back to work. And then you go back to work and you feel guilty that you're not there. So I don't think I've found the balance, but um, I do, as I said, feel grateful that I can work part-time. I'm doing uh, five days a fortnight, so two and a half days a week, which is a, a weekend shift every every fortnight. And I'm really grateful to my boss for enabling that. But I don't think I don't think balance is real when you're trying to nail both of them. It's just it's it's really hard. I can only imagine, but it does seem like you have something that works for you right now. And it might not work for you forever, but you know, you can still get what you need from work and you still get to spend time with your children, which is equally as important. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And so I I do Monday, Tuesdays and a weekend day. So I'll sometimes do a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, which feels uh, like a lot, but then I will have five days with the kids. And by the end of that, I'm like, oh, I need to work. Get me out of here. Um, and it, you look, it, I, as I said, I feel really lucky that I've got the, the, the system in place that I do. And at the same time, even when I'm, when I'm not working, when I'm home with the kids, I'm still always looking for little things to do, whether it's my photography or I've got a new obsession with vegetable gardening and I've just started a um, tiny little hobby YouTube channel for vegetable gardening in Melbourne. And that's something fun that I can do with the kids that they quite enjoy doing as well. So I'm always, always looking for more and I'm looking for ways to kind of keep, I guess, working in a way which incorporates my kids, which... Uh, is very hard to do, but I am, um, yeah, I've, I've always got little hobbies on the go. And at the moment, my my YouTube vegetable gardening channel is a little hobby that I'm having lots of fun with. <laughs> I love that. Now, before we get on to quick fire questions, I have one last question I want to ask you. And, you know, you mentioned at the start about the importance of, you know, potentially needing to relocate regionally, but what other advice would you give to someone who is interested in pursuing a career similar to yours? Okay, that is a good question. Well, the the first, I think probably in the good old days, a uni degree probably didn't matter as much. Now it really does. So definitely go to uni and get your qualifications, whether it is a journalism degree or a combined degree like mine. And this one... I, I struggle with because as someone I, I feel like I am I contradict my own values here but I think something that's really important in this industry is to go and work for free and I don't in life I don't believe that people should have to work for free I believe that people should be paid for their time they should be paid fairly in this industry um, people aren't always paid as well as they should be but if you you've got to look after yourself And in this industry, if that's what you want, the best way to get your foot in the door is to just put your hand up and just to be there and say, I recognise you might not have a job for me right now, but could I come in and help on the weekends? Could I come and help carry the gear? Could I come and help you research things? And, you know, more often than not, if you're not, if a boss isn't having to commit to employing someone, they just want someone to come in and watch or to volunteer or whatever, you've got much a much greater chance of getting your foot in the door. The other thing that I always say is in this industry, good things don't come to those who wait. So if you just think I am just going to wait for the right opportunity or I'm going to wait until I meet the right person, you won't get there. You need to really fight for it and get your foot in the door because more often than not, when jobs arise, they aren't advertised because there's already people waiting to go and there's already a preferred candidate before that job 
becomes vacant. So the best way to get your foot in the door is to be front of mind, to already have made those connections, to already have been present, to introduce yourself to people, to show how keen you are. There are a lot of people who try and break into the TV news industry wanting to become a presenter. And that is a very quick way of making sure you never get invited back because we we don't need presenters. We've got beautiful presenters. We need people who are really hard news chasers, people who are passionate about journalism and getting to the truth and finding things out and chasing stories. So if you, you know, do get that foot in the door, whether it's through an internship or through some volunteer work or something like that, if someone can see that you're chasing really hard and you're passionate about the story and the news element, you're much more likely to be invited back when something opens up. Whereas if you're asking questions like, so how do I become a presenter and how do I get on TV? Well, then you can sort of tell that that person's heart isn't in the right place because, you know, most journalists will never end up being a presenter. And if that's your goal, you probably, you're in the wrong industry. (laughs) You know, goes, you know, people have asked me that question before. How do I become a sports presenter? And I say, well, become really good at a sport, go through the Olympics, win a few medals, And then, you know, you could get your foot in the door that way. You don't come into this industry wanting to present because the presenters are people who have spent their time, you know, building up a reputation as great journalists, really caring about the stories and caring about the people and caring about the news. Um, And you have to be a great journalist, I feel, before you can be a great presenter. Thank you for sharing that. I think that is really, really important and great advice. And now it is time for our quick fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Go for it. Okay. First up, what has been your favorite PR event ever? I will always get really excited when I see an invitation to a musical or theater opening night. So, the Moulin Rouge opening night I was so excited about because I'd covered the story from the early days. I'd met the cast, I'd interviewed them. I had, you know, my heart broke for them when they had to stop, cancel perform their opening performances because of COVID. So when they finally had their opening night, there was this beautiful big event put on and I loved the show because I'm a real musical junkie, but I also felt quite emotional for everyone up there on stage because I'd seen the journey they've been through. So for me, yeah, anytime I see an invite for any theatrical event, that is what gets me very excited. Love that. What is your favourite podcast apart from this, of course? Apart from this one, uh, I have a few weird podcasts that I love to listen to. There's obviously the true crime I always find fascinating. I love listening to the story of Lynette Dawson and Chris Dawson and seeing that unfold in real time. I thought Hadley Thomas did an incredible job of that and particularly then seeing it play through and um, end up going to court. Chris Dawson obviously got found guilty of murdering his wife. I thought that was amazing because that all came out of a podcast. But I also am a bit of a nerd when it comes to self-help podcasts. So there's this great podcast called The Lazy Genius, which is all about doing the boring jobs quicker and easier. So things like cleaning your kitchen and doing the laundry, how to streamline those processes and make them quicker and easier so you spend less time doing the shit jobs and more time doing the things you love. So I'm a big fan of The Lazy Genius. I think I need to listen to that podcast. I am sold. Uh, What is your favourite social media platform? 
Um, at the moment, I because I'm delving into this new little world of YouTube, that's the one I'm on the most at the moment. I'm finding it really interesting, particularly because YouTube is one of the few platforms that will pay content creators for views. So uh, that's that. Yeah, that's the one I'm delving into at the moment. Amazing. And your most visited website? Oh, news websites, probably. In the morning, it's Herald Sun and the Age or YouTube, the YouTube uh, content creators studio, <laughs> seeing how many views I got overnight and how many new subscribers I've got. And my last question for you, what is your screen time? Do you know what? I have heard you uh, ask this to quite a few people in your previous podcast, and I meant to go and check. I don't look at my screen time. It's probably a good thing. <laughs> probably a good thing, but also it doesn't always, every day it'd be different. So if I'm working on my phone, it'd be very, very high. If I'm working uh, in the newsroom, it'd be very, very high. If I'm with the kids, I try not to look at it at all. So on the days that I'm with the kids, I'm very conscious about not being on my phone constantly. I don't always win, but I, I, I have no idea what my screen time is. And I couldn't tell you what a good screen time or a bad screen time is. I just know within myself if I'm distracted and the kids will tell me if my screen time is too high because they'll start crying. <laughs> they will start looking and sort of and tapping me, put it down, mum, put it down, mum. Uh, but I did, it was very cute the other day, actually. So my three-year-old, my nearly three-year-old, who you might be able to hear yelling out in the background, she's with my husband at the moment, was putting on a performance. So she set up all her teddies and dollies on the step and she said, mum, you have to sit here. And she had her little Elsa dress on and she went to do some spins and turns. And I said, all right, let's go. And I introduced her, welcome to the stage, Chloe, off you go. And she said, no, mum. And she picked up her pretend phone and she gave it to me and she said, mum, you have to record, press record. <laughs> so the stage wasn't set for her until mummy had a phone in her hand and was holding it like this, recording the demonstration. So I don't know if that's a, um, that's probably a negative reflection of how much I use my phone, but if there's anything cute or exciting happening, I'm often recording it. So I'd say my screen time is probably higher than it should be. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. Well, thank you so much for joining me this morning. It has been such a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for having me on. It's been a joy. Thank you for listening to The Press Office with Kate and Co PR. Please subscribe, rate and review via your favourite podcast app and please give us a follow, like and share on Instagram at Kate Co PR.